thinking this morning about Christ's ascension. So if you have your Bibles open at Acts chapter 1, uh, first 11 verses, then that will help you. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but farewells aren't my uh, most uh, favorite experiences. Some of my saddest memories are connected with uh, saying uh, goodbye uh, to people. I remember, for example, how I felt when uh, we came down to Glasgow from Sky to uh, get Grace settled in to student life in Glasgow. Uh, I think it must have been about nine years ago. And uh, after we got her into the flat and stocked her up with enough food for a small army, and we got into the car and turned away again, uh, waving until we couldn't see her no more, I remember very well how I felt. And it wasn't uh, a very uh, nice experience. It was a very sad experience. And so it might seem strange that the disappearance from view of Jesus, the, the departure, might be uh, seen as part of his glory. Uh, but it is. The catechism, the short catechism, reminds us that uh, this part of Jesus' uh, life, his ascension, uh, is a very important part of his exaltation. You know, when he comes down to earth, it is in a state of humiliation, and then uh, he is exalted again. Uh, the Catechism says that it consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. So it's part of his glory, it's part of his exaltation. Uh, now, from another <coughs> angle, it might also seem to be mystifying, and that is, uh, wouldn't it be easier, wouldn't it be easier to attract followers to Jesus if he were still on earth? You've probably had the kind of discussion that I've had with uh, non-Christian people who say, well, you know, it's all very well that you say that Jesus is authenticated by miracles, and such like. But that was 2,000 years ago. If Jesus was appeared today and was to stand before me then, then I would believe in him. But that's not going to happen, is it? And it might seem to be a strategic mistake for uh, Jesus to be removed from the earth. It's like taking your best uh, player off the pitch uh, when you're facing a difficult team. But we're going to see as we consider the ascension that the ascension is, firstly, the pinnacle of uh, Jesus' glory, this side of his return. And also, rather than it being a disadvantage for Jesus not to be on earth, uh, it is, as he himself said, it is for our advantage that I am going away, he told the disciples. And we'll see how that is. Now, we have been, this is the fourth in a series of sermons on the glory of Christ. Our, our aim in preaching on the glory of Christ is that that should capture us, captivate us, uh, motivate us to his service. And as we've gone along, there are three out of the four occasions have been tied in with what we call the offices of Christ or the aspects of his work. And we think in terms of Jesus' work as the work of a prophet, and of a priest, and of a king. And we 
looked at the baptism of Jesus, and we saw that that was connected to his priestly work. Why? Because at his baptism, Jesus is identifying with sinners. He comes along with all the sinners coming out of Judea and Jerusalem to be baptized of John. And he came uh, to be numbered amongst the transgressors. That's his priestly work. <clears throat> and then when we were considering the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we thought of that in terms of his work as a prophet. Because Jesus is placed head and shoulders above the two great prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And the Father's word to those who are with him is, uh, this is my son, listen to him. He has words to speak, words of illumination, words of salvation. Listen to him. And now, friends, we're going to be looking at Jesus as the king. Jesus <laughs> as the returning king. Jesus has conquered and Jesus is returning now in glory, matchless glory, uh, into heaven. Heaven's courts will ring with the shouts of the angels as Jesus comes into view. This is the returning king. So, I want us to consider, uh, again, three points. First of all, that Jesus is this promised king. And then secondly, that his ascension is his return in victory. And thirdly... As the risen king, he is ruling now. He is the king. He has returned in victory, and he is ruling now. The office of king uh, was given to Israel, uh, not just as a, a governmental function. It was given to Israel as a way of picturing for them what the Messiah would do when he came. Uh, similarly, the priest and the prophet, uh, all three were anointed, uh, hence the word Messiah or Christ, and they all have a function of showing us what the Messiah would be like. <clears throat> so, although <clears throat> initially the country was uh, ruled by judges and God was their only king, it was always in God's will for the people to have what they eventually hankered after, a king. And of all the kings that God gave them, the most important, uh, the most symbolic is David. David sinned greatly, but he loved greatly. He was a, a redeemed man, a man after God's own heart. Uh, he was a warrior king, a king who extended uh, the boundaries of Israel until a, a reign of peace was ushered in under King Solomon. Uh, who followed him. But <clears throat> there are aspects of the reign of David and things that were said to him that can only be understood if we see him as pointing towards uh, someone else and a greater kingdom. For example, God uh, comes to him and promises uh, an eternal kingdom. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, whatever that meant, uh, it could not refer to the uh, political kingdom of Israel, because there ain't no king in Israel today. But there is a king who came, Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that and other prophecies, like, for example, uh, Isaiah 
Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. And the Gospels, uh, when they're written, they make a very clear distinct, a clear connection with David, the king, when they're speaking of Jesus. Matthew, uh, when he begins his gospel, begins with a genealogy, and we come to these genealogies and we kind of groan, thinking, what interest is this? But they're hugely interesting and significant. And Matthew straight away ties his genealogy in with two key people. And these people are Abraham and David. Uh, uh, he says that this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, we've seen uh, in Sunday evenings how the promise to Israel, the promise uh, to Abraham, is a promise which had a global significance of blessing. And Jesus has now come as a fulfillment that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But he's also coming as the fulfillment of promises to David, the king. Luke's gospel tells us that the angel Gabriel announces the birth of Jesus in terms of the promise of a Davidic king. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. His kingdom will never cease. Uh, the early chapters of Luke's gospel are about the birth of two babies. And it's interesting the way that the, the stories are set up. Uh, two babies... Uh, it starts with the story of John's birth, the story of John the Baptist's birth. It's the story of a childless couple who are promised a child in the temple and who mark the promise fulfillment with a song. That brings to our minds, it should bring to our minds, if we know our Old Testament, echoes of something in uh, the Old Testament where a childless couple are promised a baby in the temple and respond with a song. Hannah uh, comes to the temple and uh, is promised a child, and when the child comes, she responds with a song. And so Luke's telling us the story of John's birth in a way that links it in our minds with the coming of Samuel, who was born to Hannah. What was Samuel's greatest task? His greatest task was to go and anoint David, the king. So, uh, John the Baptist is being linked in with Samuel, uh, who is a forerunner of David. And the birth of Jesus, then, is being linked in with David. Samuel, John is the new Samuel, and Jesus is the new David. And that's what Zechariah sees when he bursts into joy at the birth of his son, John, uh, who will be the forerunner. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and has redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. At his baptism and at the transfiguration, the Lord Jesus is affirmed by God with a voice from heaven. God speaks to Jesus and to those who are there, this is my son. And we saw on both occasions this is echoing Psalm 2, an echo of the, the covenantal psalm, the covenant that's being made with David. Jesus is ascending as David's greater son, the one in whom all the promises are now being fulfilled. And he's coming as a warrior king, just as David was epitomized, the, the warrior prince who rides out with his armies to defeat 
the enemies. Jesus comes as the warrior king to defeat his and our enemies. And so one of the first episodes in his life, in his ministry, his public ministry, is the defeat of Satan in the wilderness. Uh, Satan tempts him with the offer of a kingdom on his terms, and Jesus refuses and goes out to continue uh, his, his, uh, his kingly uh, uh, campaign. He casts out evil spirits. Uh, he cures uh, men and, w- and women of their illness. He stills the surging waves. He forgives sins. People like blind Bartimaeus recognize who it is that is coming and uh, call out to him as the son of David. And even the children and the onlookers on the, the way into Jerusalem recognize the significance, at one level at least, of Jesus coming, and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus is David's greater son. And Jesus wins the victory, and the ascension is Jesus' return after the victory. Our second point. Jesus' ascension marks his return after his victory. I want us to think of three aspects of Jesus' victory as this king. In winning his victory... Jesus has won a liberation for his people. He's also been given authority because he is one. And he has been given a reward. He's won a liberation, he's won authority, and he's won a reward. The ascension is a liberation. Just remember what Jesus was talking about on that Mount of Transfiguration that we were thinking about the last time. He was speaking to Moses and Elijah about what? about the departure, about the exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to liberate a people. Moses was the great liberator. He led them out in an exodus. Jesus, as the king, will bring an exodus for his people. He will liberate us, not from a pharaoh, but from sin. You and I, before we came to Jesus Christ and knew him as Savior and Lord, had chains we could not see. We were in bondage uh, to our sinful nature. And we, we lived out the fact that we were born and shapen in iniquity. And Jesus comes to liberate us from that. And so he rides as a king coming into Jerusalem rides in a donkey, as Solomon once did. The crowds are expecting a political king, uh, someone that will get rid of the Romans. And it's quite amazing uh, that in Act 1, at the very time when Jesus is about to return, disciples still haven't really got it. Uh, And they're asking Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That is wrong at so many levels, isn't it? It's wrong at at least three levels. uh, That Jesus' kingdom, they're still thinking of in terms of political terms, and rather than spiritual terms. They're thinking it only applies to Israel. God has much greater plans than that. Uh, It's nothing less than the promise of Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed in Jesus. And it would come at this time. This time will be a time of mission. And the, the coming in of the kingdom in its fullness will be when Jesus returns in the same manner on the clouds. Jesus' victory, in fact, is won 
in a very, very different way from the way even his closest friends anticipated. His battle is for the release of his people from the bonds of sin. We were rebels against the creator king. His justice demands that that rebellion should be punished. His mercy longs to show compassion and to bring us instead into his family. And on the cross of Calvary, his justice and his mercy are met together. And all of the expectations of everyone, including Satan, are confounded. Satan thinks, of course, that uh, he has won the day. There is the king, mocked with a, a title on the very cross on which he's dying. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They had plated a crown of thorns on his head and they had mocked him as the blood ran down. And here is the king gasping for breath in the sun of Jerusalem. And then comes the darkness over the land. And the demons laugh as they dance around the cross. For Jesus surely has lost. And then comes Sunday morning. And the message of the angel, he is not here. Jesus, Jesus had triumphed, had borne the penalty of sin, had broken uh, free from the grave's captivity. This is our king's journey to glory. This is the pattern that people should have expected, but didn't. But looking back, the apostles can see, this is how it had to be. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. A beautiful expression, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Praise God. This is the glory that follows. The ascension is the glory after the dust of battle has settled, after the trumpet has proclaimed the victory of the king, this is the king entering into his glory. He must first climb the Mount of Calvary before he climbs the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Ascension. Jesus has won. He's won a liberty for his people. He's won for himself a new authority. You know, when we go back to the Old Testament and we say, where are we finding the prophecies of this glory? One of the key prophecies is Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Really, really important passage in the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel has a vision, and he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and governing power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is one of the most important uh, prophetic passages in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. For one thing, uh, this, this phrase that's used here, son of man, is Jesus' favorite description of himself. 
rather than speak of himself as the son of God, Jesus continually speaks to, of himself as the son of man. And at one level, uh, it's a Hebraism that could simply mean a man, one like a man. But on another level, in the context, it clearly means someone who is divine, someone who has all power and authority. So it served our Lord's purpose so well, didn't it, to, to use this title which spoke the truth of him, and yet it, it dampened expectations until God's timetable was fulfilled. Notice the direction of travel of the Son of Man in Daniel's vision. In Acts 1, uh, the angel tells the disciples, Jesus will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So we are looking for that day, aren't we? We're looking for the day when Jesus will return. And he will return on the clouds. He will come into view. Every eye will see him. He will come from the Father's presence to earth. But that's not the direction of travel in Daniel's gospel, in Daniel's uh, vision. It is in the other direction. Uh, he is traveling to the Ancient of Days. That's to God the Father. So Daniel 7 is describing what happens at the Ascension. The Son of Man coming in the clouds into the presence of the Ancient of Days to receive all authority and power and dominion. Glorious, isn't it? This is what Daniel's seeing. He's seeing not his return, but his ascension. The ascension marks the coronation in victory of the king. He is given authority over everything in heaven and earth. And that is the difference between the earthly David and the David from heaven, David's greater son. Acts 2.34, Peter says, David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David is not the ultimate king. He did not return to God's right hand in glory. But the ultimate king, Jesus, did. This is a sign of his supremacy, his authority. Jesus is Lord, will be the confession of the church throughout the ages. He has received all authority and all dominion. He also receives his reward. There, are, there is a great coronation gift for Jesus as he returns to heaven. What is the reward? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Peter in Acts 2 again declares, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This, for Christians, as far as we are concerned at least, is the greatest part of the ascension. Not until Jesus had ascended could the Holy Spirit be given. Uh, this is what Jesus means when he's talking to the disciples in the midst of their confusion and their sorrow when they know that he's going to leave them. He says, I tell you the truth. It's good for you that I go away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the one who brings new life and power to the believer who unites us to Jesus. 
he will only be given when Jesus has ascended, his work done, his return to the Father. And, and picture it like this. Jesus uh, enters the, the, the courts of glory. The angels uh, are blowing their trumpets. Uh, they're lining the streets. They are acclaiming his return. And he's given all authority and power. And he is given the reward of the Spirit. And he receives that on our behalf. And on the day of Pentecost, the gift that Jesus has received is given to his church. You saw that echoes in the in Second Chronicles 5. Maybe you're wondering, where on earth are we going with this? Well, the interesting thing is that in the early church, we're told in Acts 1 that there were 120 believers. There would have been 120 gathered on that day of Pentecost. And on that day, when the glory fell in the temple, there are 120 priests uh, blowing trumpets, and the glory of God comes down in a cloud and overwhelms the people. And the glory of God comes down with the giving of the Spirit. That day when the 120 gather in Pentecost, in, uh, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus has the gift of the Holy Spirit for his people. Jesus' victory meant uh, the liberation of us as sinners, meant that he himself receives all authority, and he has the gift of the Spirit for his church. And he's ruling now. He's ruling now. We ask the question, well, this is, this is kind of interesting, but what does it mean for us today? What does it mean? Well, it means the same as it did in the first century. In the first century, uh, there weren't many obvious signs that Jesus is Lord. You were in Jerusalem and there was a, an army of, of occupation tramping up and down the streets. Uh, throughout the Roman Empire, there were statues and temples to false gods. And today, uh, in our country, whether we live in Coatbridge or Cambridge, all the signs around us, uh, the, the posters, the billboards by the side of the road and on the streets, they're proclaiming very different kings and, and lords. Claiming uh, cars and sport and beauty. In what ways, therefore, is Jesus ruling? Well, he's ruling from the point of view of the mission of his church. Every time there is somebody who believes in the Lord Jesus, who bows the knee to him, who believes in Jesus as saviour from their sins, and submits to his, his kingship in their lives, Jesus is ruling. His kingdom is extended. True evangelism always involves asking people to submit to Jesus as king. Jesus' preaching is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's what we are to do. Uh, and we're always tempted to, to proclaim the gospel in different ways uh, because we live in a society, we live in an age which is very much individualistic and consumer-driven and people are offered a, a buffet choice of, of lifestyles, you know, and what you, what you need to do to get a lot out of life is to decide what's best for you. You make your lifestyle choice, and if it's good for you, good on you. That's, that's what we want. 
But the gospel is not like that. It's not about telling people that Jesus can make your life a little bit better. It's not about saying that Jesus wants to be your friend. Not even about saying that Jesus loves you. Because Jesus may not love you right now. You may be under the wrath of God. But it is saying that you are to come to the Lord Jesus and receive him as King and Lord. Because one day, all will see Jesus as King. All will stand before Jesus. But then they will know him as King and Judge. But today we may know him as King and Saviour. On another mountain before the ascension, Jesus gives this small and hesitant army their marching orders. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go then, make disciples of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has all authority. He's speaking, see, as though it were already a done deal. It's as good as done. He, therefore, could simply, by word of his command, create a, a, a fully populated church. Instead, he says, go then. He has made his people to be uh, the soldiers of the cross, to go and fulfill the mandate uh, over the nations, to call all people from every nation, not just from Israel, but from every nation, to come under the kingship of Jesus and to baptize these disciples with the sign of of the king. And so Jesus' rule is extending as we call on people to lay down their arms and to submit to him, to acknowledge that he is the only saviour who will fit us for heaven, to make us him Lord. And he equips us for that task. Uh, in, in the Roman Empire, when a general had won a great victory, uh, he would be honoured and he would be allowed sometimes to have a, a victory parade through Rome. And in the victory parade, he would leave the, uh, some of the conquered peoples uh, behind him as they were on display. This, these are some of the, the tokens of his, his great victory. And people would be lining the, the road, uh, acclaiming this uh, victorious general, and there would be gifts given to those who lined the streets. And in one of the great ascension verses in Ephesians 4, we've got the same picture. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Jesus has given gifts to men. What are his gifts? Paul goes on in Ephesians 4. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for acts of service so that the whole body of, of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Jesus has ascended uh, and he now equips his church, his army, for the spread of his kingdom. Uh, he equips us with the Holy Spirit that he gives to every believer uh, who believes in Jesus. And he has given the gifts of leadership to his church. So that today we have pastors and teachers who are there uh, not to do all the work, but to equip God's people for acts of service. To mobilize the church. And so we go out into the world to extend the rule of Jesus with all the gifts that he has given us. 
and we pray your kingdom come. Paul saw that kingdom being begun in the most unlikely places. He saw the seed of the gospel being sown in the imperial household. And we pray, don't we? We pray for the kingdom to grow in even the most public and most influential places. Uh, I was on the train last week and I met uh, John Mason, the MSP, and he was saying that a group of six of them gathering to pray in Hollywood. What are they praying for? They're praying that the kingdom of God will come in the public sphere. Seems like a small number, doesn't it, out of 129. But the kingdom of God grows from mustard seed, from the tiniest of beginnings. And then in our community groups, what we were doing, we were thinking of individuals that we would uh, seek to witness to, to pray for, that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, as people are saved, as lives are changed, there are substantial healing of the ravages of sin in our world as Jesus extends his rule. Notice the word substantial. We don't expect this side of Jesus' return complete healing of the ravages of sin. The very absence of Jesus now is reminding us that we are in in between times. Jesus' kingdom is already here, but it's not here in his fullness. We are looking for the day when he will return in the same manner as he went into the heavens. That day we will see the healing of illness, the cure of our remedies, uh, of, our, our, of our maladies in the new heaven and the new earth. And in the between times, the kingdom comes as communities of Jesus' people live out a lifestyle that is very different from the world and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And at the end of history, when the times will have reached their fulfillment, John says that the day will come when the cry will go up. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Glorious future. You know, there's a word here. We've been thinking largely of what it means for the Christian to know that the ascended Christ is in heaven. But there's a word for anyone who's not yet a believer. And the word is from the haunting question that Psalm 24 poses. Who may ascend the hill of God? Who may stand in the presence of holiness? Answer, only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, that rules out me, and it rules out you also, because none of us have clean hands and a pure heart. But in heaven, there is one who does, who in his glorified humanity stands in our behalf. You know the way that the uh, uh, news broadcasters will speak about our man in Washington, our man in Brussels. We have our man in heaven, Jesus Christ, the victor 
And when we believe into him by faith, we find ourselves made fit for heaven because we are in him. We find in him our completeness, our cleanness, our purity to be fit for holiness. And so the call is to trust him, to believe in Jesus as Savior. And then Paul tells us, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Christ's ascension becomes our ascension. Believe in him and trust in him as your ascended king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth that Jesus, having been humiliated, having been uh, mocked and struck by those who could not see beauty in him, having died a criminal in our place, is not only raised from the grave, but has ascended into your presence, that he is the victorious king, and we bless him. And we pray, Lord, that we might live by faith in him, and that we might speak to those we love around us of the need to come to him in faith and trust, and to receive him as our king and as our saviour. We pray in his name.